Ola Ola Alo Aloha Ola Ola Aloha 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 You know Bros and broettes uh, We'll just do the Hawaiian version Mahalo Alright There you go It's the medication Welcome back Hey everybody Welcome back to Game of Crimes Thank you guys once again for joining in with us. We've got a little bit of a different format this time, but as always, we always start off with, uh, I'm Morgan Wright, the host with the most hair, um, you know, all that good stuff. And here literally with my partner in crime, Steve Murphy, but you know me as Murph. Yes, ma'am. And sir. Yes. Thank you guys for joining us. Uh, the script calls for a little bit of small talk, which we just did. We're going to get into the housekeeping now. Just head on over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars. Um, you know, the reviews and stuff. We really appreciate that really helps us out quite a bit. Um, also head on over to our game of crimes podcast.com, especially for our guests we have coming up. We'll talk, tell you about him in a minute. He's also got a book, a fiction book that he wrote based upon loosely based upon his experiences, uh, between California and Baghdad. So from Beverly Hills to Baghdad, we're going to find out what's going on. Uh, we got merch there, you know, and our mailing list also follow us on that thing they call social media at game of crimes on Twitter at game of crimes on Facebook and Instagram. But where you got to be, where you got to be, Murph, I'm going to ask you one more time, where do you got to be? You got to come over and check us out on Patreon. It's on content that you're not going to hear on the regular podcast, although we might have a little surprise coming up in December. But we have uh, everything from a live monthly live stream to a monthly Q&A where you can ask us anything to we just recorded, you can't make this shit up. And <laughs> It went to a dark place this yeah, time. I'm not sure where Morgan got all this information. He does all the research. He surprises me with it. Um, and so I can be just uh, uh, nauseously shocked as well as you. Um, and there's several other things. We do a case review. There's stuff on there that you're just not going to hear anywhere else. You're going to hear more of our personal opinions if you're interested in that. We, we try to stay uh, focused on our guest here on the, on the regular podcast. So come over, try us out, tell your friends about us. Christmas is coming up. That'd be a great Christmas gift to give your friends a subscription to our Patreon channel. So check it's us out. the gift that keeps on giving. And how you find us is at patreon.com slash game of crimes. That's patreon.com slash game of crimes. One more time. That's 1-800-PATREON.COM slash Game of Crimes. Don't do the 1-800. I'm just joking. All right? <laughs> so anyway, guys, hey, by the way, uh, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. By law, we have to take ourselves seriously, but what, Murph? We never, never take ourselves seriously. We're going to have some fun on the shows. Yeah, and we're going to have fun because one of the ways you have fun, too, is that you also go over and uh, you join our Game of Crimes fan club yeah. run by our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato. Just look, just even get in the ballpark, answer a couple questions, and we will determine if you are deemed worthy to have interest into that most sacred and, uh, uh, you know, of places, which is called the Game of Crimes fan club. So head on over there, search that, right? Just answer a couple questions. But you know, we got a lot of fun stuff going on. We lot of got a great stuff going on, but Murph, we can't get to it until I ask you the one. I, there's two questions I ask, mm -hmm. but the first question I ask is, "Do you know what time it is?" I do. It's time for small, small town, town police slaughter. You know, hey, so we got some good stuff coming in. This first one comes from. <laughs> it's just the headline. Uh. Woman cops to beating meat or meat beating at Ohio Walmart. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> that sounds, just the title of that sounds pornographic. Victim was struck in face with 10-pound tube of beef. Oh. This is sounding more like a video shoot that went bad. Uh, <laughs> Ohio woman. Um, and by the way, this happened in South Euclid, Ohio, population 21,388. Salute. Salute. A Ohio woman yesterday copped to clobbering a female acquaintance in the face with a 10-pound log of ground beef during a confrontation in the potato chip aisle. Well, what in was the Walmart in the potato chip aisle? Uh, apparently uh, attacking her with a log of beef. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> according to police, Garner was at a Walmart in South Euclid when she encountered victim Precious Jackson who was shopping with her seven-year-old daughter. Garner was accompanied by her five-year-old son. Jackson, who had lived downstairs from Garner in a University Heights duplex, had previously secured a protection order against her ex-neighbor. Well, apparently, folks, let me tell you, protection orders aren't worth the paper they're written on. Um, so cops say that when Garner, the suspect, confronted Jackson in the Walmart potato chip aisle, she threatened to beat up Jackson and her daughter. She then pulled down Jackson's face mask and attempted to spit on her, and when that didn't work, 
she reached into Jackson's cart and removed the $22 meat log. I like the way they call it a meat log. Holy they cow. described the tube of ground beef as a blunt object. <laughs> a 10-pound blunt object. <laughs> uh, officer, I just had a date go bad. My date tried to assault me with a blunt object. Oh, jeez. Uh, <laughs> okay. They... Garner investigators charged struck Jackson a couple of times in the face with a 10-pound log of prepackaged ground beef. She was arrested at the scene, and a relative took cuffs at her son. Jackson, fortunately, was not injured by the meat blows. Uh, <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> next story, please. <laughs> all right, all right. This next one comes to us from Hollis, New Hampshire, population 7,945. Salute. Steve, uh, a house painter accused of taking a $7,000 diamond engagement ring from a condo he was working at, swallowed the ring during a break from questioning at the police station, and it was caught on tape. The 44-year-old painter was charged with theft and falsifying evidence. Doctors had to perform emergency surgery on the man to get the 12-carat diamond ring out. He was arraigned (laughs) from his hospital bed. Police said the ring had been hidden under a mattress in a room where he had been hired to work. Uh, He was hiding the ring for his brother so his brother's girlfriend wouldn't see it until the time was right. Police brought the painter in for questioning during a break and with investigators out of the room for a few minutes. A security camera caught him swallowing the ring. I'm not sure what goes through people's mind when you're in public and there's camera in everywhere, but yeah, it's on tape. I'll tell you what goes through the mind. It's the same thing that's going to go through their asshole when you try and crap a 12-carat ring. It's going to hurt on the way out. That's why they did surgery. A 12-carat diamond ring was only worth $7,000? Maybe it was the way it was cut. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe it wasn't a real diamond. I don't know. We'll have to to ask the interwebs that. We'll go to Al Gore's Amazing Internet and ask, is there a, uh, you know, what's the value of a 7,000 or a 12-carat diamond ring? How big is a 12-carat ring? Oh, that's huge. I don't know, dude. Uh, I don't live in that uh, income bracket, so. Me either. Holy cow. Well, hey, there's one more here. So right. this comes to us from Southbury, Connecticut, population 19,656. Salute. Salute. So, Steve. Yes. This is the gift that keeps on giving. This sounds like something would happen in a DEA case. A okay. man's plan to bail himself out after a drug bust went a little bit awry over the weekend. With the aid of a drug-sniffing dog, police found 48 grams of cocaine on the 32-year-old man after pulling him over for speeding. Okay, not the crime of the century, but, you know, 48 mm-hmm. grams enough to go to jail, right? Mm-hmm. The suspect then arranged for his aunt to bring a small safe, which he can claim contained money for his bail. But when the aunt <laughs> opened the safe in front of the state trooper, they found cash, drug Damn. paraphernalia, and another 16 grams of cocaine. <laughs> Additional charges were filed against the man, including felony stupidity. There you go. Uh, and his bond was increased to $125,000. He was later bailed out by yet another a relative. So he was charged with possession of narcotics with intent to sell, possession of drug paraphernalia, cocaine, and marijuana, and speeding. <laughs> Got to get that speeding in there. <laughs> what an idiot. Uh, you, folks, see, we I'm just report the, the news. Law. How can I compound this and make it even worse? Oh, I'm so honey. stoned, I forget I got dope and paraphernalia in the place where I'm hiding my money, yeah. and which was probably seized too as being proceeds of drug par- you know, drug sales. So anyway, thus endeth the reading for today. We shall uh, <laughs> mercifully move along yeah. and get into talking about uh, this episode. So we embedded the outro at the end, but we didn't embed the intro. Like I said, we're trying a couple of different formats to see what works better. On a couple of these, like with Tim Stommel, we had him in for the uh, small town police blotter. This one we're doing by ourselves. So just give us some feedback as we work on fine-tuning our new format for the beginning of the year. By the way, speaking of the beginning of the year, just that you guys know, we will be taking December, all of December off uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one is we need, we've got some new format we want to work on. We've got some really big guests Murph is working on. So we have to get those recorded in December because we want to come out of, uh, you know, January with the bang. Uh, and the other reason what we're going to do too, is we will not go away, but we will take some of our favorite, uh, Patreon episodes from the different things we do. Nine one one. You can't make this shit up. Let's say Q and a, um, you know, things like that. And we're going to play those episodes instead, uh, during December while we're gone. But trust us, when we come back in January, we will be bloated for bear, as they say. Oh, I can't wait. We've got some guests lined up that that you have read about. You probably, I'm guessing you never thought you'd hear them here on Game of Crimes. Um, and this comes through not only our contacts, but 
uh, we're at the point now with Game of Crimes where we have people contacting us with suggestions for uh, potential guests on the show. And these are great suggestions. I mean, holy cow. You're going to hear about you're going to hear about cases that you read about in the news. A couple of them. One of my friends you met with down at ICP, Rick Zach from Microsoft, introduced you to a guy that we're going to get on the show. Yep. Some yep. great stories. But this one, Steve, tell us, tell everybody how we got um, Gary Edgington. Because we actually had to, we, neither one of us knew Gary, so we had to check his ass out. Yep. So this came in as a recommendation uh, from a good friend of ours. Uh, we take very seriously who we bring on the show here. We just don't, uh, you know, we got, we have a lot of people recommend that we bring military heroes on the show and they absolutely deserve a place, but game of crimes is more about law enforcement. So uh, we're always looking for the law enforcement connection, but we don't accept just everybody. We want somebody that has a good, interesting story that, that we've, <laughs> we actually vet. And we did that with Gary through several law enforcement professionals that we know around the country. And he came through with flying colors. And I think you're going to love his story once you hear it here. But one of the cool things about him is the book that he wrote. Um, I got to look it up here again. Inside, Inside the, wire. the Wire. Which we're going to talk more about in the show. But uh, I, I highly recommend it. It's a book I got on Kindle. I was flying out to Dallas and then San Diego and back. And I had read the book by the time I got back. That's how interesting I found it. So um, I think you're going to like what you're going to hear today. Well, yeah, and trust me, he's got a great story. So from Beverly Hills to Baghdad, yeah. uh, and by the way, he he was there when the actual Beverly Hills cop was being filmed. Uh, they modeled Axel Foley after him and his exploits. Um, That's not really. He's sticking to it. <laughs> That's right. Hey, but there's only one way we can find out about the story, Murph, and I have to ask you, are you ready? Are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, this game we call Game of Crimes? Hey, everybody, this has some international connections. So get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Come on, Gary, let's talk. Let's hear your story here, brother. All right, welcome back, you amigos, amigos, players, playerettes, do-do-dats, everybody in between. This is going to be another exciting episode. How do I know it's going to be exciting? Because I'm on it. And Murph's on it. <laughs> and we got a special guest. So now this guy, here's the thing. Here's Murph's and I's approach. We know a lot of people. So when we bring them onto the podcast, they're already that because we know them. Or somebody we trust knows them. But uh, with Gary, though, you were a little bit different, man. We had to do, we had to do some, I freaking had to call the CIA. Murph had to call SOCOM. I mean, we had to check your ass out before we let you on. But you have made it. On the game of crime, so welcome Gary Edgington. <laughs> Very good, I appreciate that. If the if SOCOM acknowledged my existence, then there's a problem. <laughs> no, they didn't. But the fact is, when they go, we can so. neither confirm nor deny. But you know what I know? If they don't like you, they're gonna. We can neither confirm nor deny. But if we ever see that son of a bitch again, tell him to lose exactly. our number. Yeah, exactly. You may not exactly. feel like this when the podcast's over either, Gary. But uh, <laughs> honored to have you on here, brother. Thanks for putting up with our bullshit. And it's just starting, by the way. So let's see how this goes. I gathered that I am a detective. I did hear a bit. Yeah, see, Murph, just pick on detectives. Murph's got this fed. I'm a fed. I'm, you know, we're we're better than everybody else. He likes to pick on a state and local guys. No, I was never I was never in the bureau. I don't have that kind of attitude. I was a local I was a local uniform cop before I became a fed. All three of us the, were. We were thing, all one thing that you and I weren't, Gary, was a trooper. <laughs> that is true. But I, I, I did work for the state of California Department of Justice, and that was uh, an all roads, all codes sort of situation See, as well. You are the third person that has said that. Did you ever know a guy named uh, Scott Howland from CHP? Mm, no. Scott ended so. up being kind of like a commander, a CIO and other stuff, mm -hmm. but he worked his road up. But him and I were just having a discussion about this. And that's that's the third time I've heard somebody say that. They say the thing about the state patrol, and I said it, all roads, all codes. All codes, that's right. You know, we could enforce every law that was on the book. No other law enforcement agency in the state could say that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it's you true. know what? When you talk to cops in other parts of California, they're like, oh, those chips, man. They would write their own freaking mother. And I said, you ever met Morgan? <laughs> hey, I've made this very clear. I would never write my own mother a ticket. However, I would detain her, call another trooper over, and have him issue the ticket. But I would never do it personally myself. I never did that. Please, come on. Well, hey, well, let's before we diverge. Okay, so we also have a problem too. Is anytime, um, you know. But uh, I digress. If we have a, if we digress, it's a drinking game. So that was your first digression. We kind of went off. So 
But I digress. Now back to our originally scheduled podcast. So, Gary, as we do with everybody in this thing that we call Cosa Nostra, thing of ours, you have an interesting story, though. And all serious, uh, you know, all kidding aside, being serious, um, you had a start nobody wants to have to their law enforcement career. Right. That's correct. Yes, that is very true. Uh, Yeah, Um, it was uh, a reality check like uh, like none other. Um, you know, when you, uh, when you start in this business and I started as a cadet, actually as an explorer in 1974, and then I became a cadet in 76 and then got hired on and sworn, uh, in 79. Um, you know, I'd known guys that had been in shootings and I believe, um, one of the guys that I had worked with had been shot at one of the, at uh, the small agency I worked for. But it still was not uh, first and foremost in my mind, and certainly not where my father worked. My wa- my father worked in Marina del Rey, California, with uh, the LA County Harbor Patrol. He did twenty years in the Coast Guard and got out as an E eight, and you know went in in forty two, and and you know so he went through the Pacific and World War two and came out unscathed, and you know and then started a law enforcement career with them, and uh, you know fifteen years later, you know. He uh, he's killed in the line of duty, stabbed to death. Well, let's Jeez. let's rewind before we get into sure. that too, because th- that kind of I wanted everybody to kind of understand where we're going with this, because you've already laid out one of the reasons you probably got into law enforcement. Was that one of the reasons, or w- for you, why did you decide, hey, I want to do this thing, you know, called being a cop or being a deputy? Yeah, actually, um, that was probably. Uh, a major impetus, uh, for doing this. Um, and, um, there was one show that, uh, you guys might recall, uh, that I really loved, uh, that was uh, called don't, police. Don't say Miami vice, whatever you no. do. don't say. I hope we all, we probably all went through that, that, uh, attire, uh, style stage of uh, Miami Vice. But anyway, um, uh, it was called Police Story. It was written by, uh, it was, it was written by Joseph Wambaugh. And that, that uh, those characters were three-dimensional and uh, the stories were great and real. And I, and even as a, even as a, 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 a dumb adolescent, I always thought that show was fantastic for those reasons. And, uh, and of course, you know, with my father and everything and, and hanging around with him and then meeting a lot of sheriff's deputies, which is one of the which was the other the, the agency that patrolled most of the uh, the terra firma around Marina del Rey was the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. And uh, so I got to meet a lot of those guys. And that's sort of how it all started. Mm. So you, you were you born in California? Culver City. Santa Monica, right. actually born in Santa Monica, raised in Culver City. My, both my mom and my dad, uh, are native uh, Southern Californians. So very nice. So you know, Murph. The other thing too, as we do with everything in this one. So uh, just to let you know right up front, Gary. We dedicate this episode to Patrolman Harold L. Edgington, Los Angeles County Harbor Patrol, into watch September thirtieth, nineteen seventy nine. So absolutely, uh, thank you. Yeah, uh, you know, thank and, you. Um, you know, and if you folks go to folks, things like odmp.org, it's the Officer Down Memorial page, you will still see, you know, to this day, um, Gary, and you probably have seen that up there too. Um, you've got Rabbi Lewis back in 2021, people in 2020, years later, 30, 40 years later, people are still writing stuff on people's walls to remember their service. Yeah, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm actually getting chills right now thinking about, it. you're absolutely right. In fact, on my webpage, I have a link to ODMP. I think they do a wonderful job of getting the word out because most people have no understanding of the, uh, the human toll that, uh, that this business uh, takes. I'm looking at your webpage right now. Is that your dad there, right? Yes. Yep. Looking good. Looking good. We're sorry for your loss, brother. It's, Thank uh, you. I appreciate that. I appreciate even it. Even though we don't know him, we're all still part of the law enforcement family, and it affects if us If your all. name's on the wall, um, that's, you know, uh, we've all got friends who've been, you know, names on the wall. Uh, yep. But let's talk about that because that, yes. I mean, you got the impetus, but the way the way you found out about it happened in the academy. Exactly. That's correct. Um, it, it, uh, I, my agency, uh, well, the practice in the LA County Sheriff's Academy at that time was every other week you worked at your parent agency in a 
you know, if it was a small agency, you worked patrol function or you worked in the jail if you were the sheriff's department. And so I went on patrol. I was working for Manhattan Beach Police Department, and I worked that evening graveyard shift um, with one of the officers as uh, a trainee. And we handled, uh, as you typically did in Manhattan Beach, surly drunks. And one guy kind of got a little frisky and, you know, could have gone either way. It turned out it was okay. So that morning, um, I came home and dad was getting ready for work. And so we sat down and had breakfast together and we talked about it and we talked about use of force and what had happened and everything. And then we talked about the Yule Love case, which was a very controversial shooting in Los Angeles. Uh, actually, it should not have been controversial, but it was. It's pretty straightforward. Basically, uh, two LAPD officers were investigating an assault with a deadly weapon on a gas company employee um, and uh, were confronted by a uh, female uh, armed with a, a very large butcher knife, which she threw at them, and they, they shot her and killed her. And um, the, the fact of the matter is that uh, it was reported in the media that the LAPD was there to, um, uh, to collect on a gas company bill, which, of course, was complete rubbish. They were actually there investigating an assault on the gas company employee by the decedent. Um, she hit him in the head, I believe, with a shovel because he was there to turn off her gas because she hadn't paid her bill. So we talked about it that morning. And um, so I know it was on his mind. And about 1130 in the morning, I got up um, and the phone rang in the kitchen and I picked it up and it was one of my dad's friends and partners, Bob Dean. And Bob said, Gary, your dad's been hurt. Um, we need you to come to the hospital. And that was Marina Mercy Hospital. It's just 10, five, 10 minute drive from my house. And I said, so what happened? And he said, uh, uh, just, you know, we, he's been hurt badly. You need to come. And um, I, he, he rode because of the, the nature of Marina del Rey with narrow uh, breezeways and stuff. He actually rode a three-wheel uh, Harley-Davidson motorcycle with a box on the back that you see some places. You see it in the Capitol. Uh, uh, the the, uh, the DCPD uses them. Anyway, that's what he used. And so – I, so I asked him if he'd rolled it, and he said no, he, he was hurt. Um, so I got to the hospital, and I was met by an LAPD beach patrol officer, and um, he put his hand on my shoulder and, and told me my dad was gone and said that um, my dad had shot him and that uh, the round that he said, quote, unquote, uh, we just heard that that was the round that killed the suspect. Well, he was trying to help me out and make me feel better, but that really was not the case. My dad did hit him, but that was not the fatal round. And uh, so anyway, went in the hospital and saw his boots on the floor, you know, and found out that he'd been stabbed to death. Uh, and then later on found out what, what happened um, and the, who the suspect was. He was a whack, what we call a 5150 in California. And um, he had been um, – in 1975, he picked up – he had a spat with his, uh, with his roommate and picked up a rifle in Randall Ray and started blazing. And my dad and a bunch of other guys responded and hooked him up. And, uh, and then um, he was adjudicated as being criminally insane and packed off to a Tuscadero State Mental Hospital for the criminally insane. And then 18 months later, patted on the head, handled a, handed a bottle of uh, a Thorazine and told to uh, be a good boy and take your pills and don't sin anymore, which of course, he's a whack, so he didn't do that. He stopped taking his medicine. And um, the interesting thing about this whole thing, this was really a, a confluence, a perfect storm of circumstance, because as it turned out, they couldn't figure out why this guy, why this this the suspect in this thing, who was dead because the the sh responding sheriff's deputies um, um, uh, dumped him. Um, they couldn't figure out why he had my dad's business card in his wallet. Well, it turned out he had come in to to beef my father. My father had been working as about two weeks before he'd been working as – or three weeks before he'd been working as the acting watch commander and uh, gotten a, a verbal – altercation with this guy over the radio. And I happened to be there because I was starting the academy in a few days' time. And so I just wanted to talk to him before then. And so Wait I actually minute. heard this. 
you heard the argument between mm-hmm. your dad and the suspect? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. That was and and I was able to put that together. I was like, "Oh, wait a minute. I know who that is. That's the guy my dad was arguing with on this date at this time." Anyway, let me get back to what happened because there are some there are for law enforcement officers, there's a lot of lessons to be learned. Um um my dad uh, at first did not recognize the threat. There was a woman, a, a young lady who was a, a teacher, a college student who was teaching sailing that um, felt like the suspect was coming after her first. The suspect was armed with a folding hunter buck knife, which, you know, it's a pretty common knife. It's about a three inch blade, three and a half inch blade. And um, he was screaming and yelling and raving at the top of his lungs. And he said, uh, started screaming at my dad saying, you've got a gun, kill me. And so my dad started backpedaling and he went around the motorcycle and put the motorcycle between him and the suspect and the suspect broke into a ran and went around it. And at about 15 feet, my dad um, drew his weapon and um, fired one shot. Well, we come to find out um, that um, – I know how my I used to shoot with my dad all the time, and I know he used to shoot single action. So I'm sure the round went off before he wanted it to because he was backpedaling, and probably, you know, certainly he wasn't in a good shooting stance. And also, he had a a brake front holster, and he didn't practice it with it much. And I'm sure he was not, you know, like we all probably had a lot of tactical training in our careers. Well, he did not get a lot of tactical training. And his mindset was probably not what ours would have been in a similar situation because he's in this idyllic place, Marina del Rey, on a Sunday afternoon, a beautiful Sunday afternoon, and this happens. you know. So witnesses said as he pulled the weapon, he pulled it hesitantly or slowly, and I believe that that is probably related to the fact that we had just discussed that morning this brouhaha about these LAPD officers shooting a guy that, or shooting a, a suspect armed with a knife. And I know in the back of my mind, that probably caused some hesitation on his part. And so the suspect um, broke into a run, stabbed him in the solar plexus and knocked him down and cut his right carotid artery and eviscerated him, took his gun and went off uh, 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 about 50 yards or so and emptied the emptied the revolver. It was a Model 15 Smith, emptied the revolver and then stuck it in his waistband and continued on. And of course, somebody picked up the radio and you know, put out officer needs help, officer down, blah, blah, blah. And two sheriff's deputies responded and confronted him. And uh, he slashed at them and they, they, they fired a couple snapshots at him and missed him. And then they chased him across the street and um, – and they were able to take aim and uh, dump him, and um, and then that was it. And I was in the third week of the academy when that happened. Man, that's devastating. When you said he dumped the 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 gun, did he fire it and dump it, or you mean, or just open up the cylinder and open up the cylinder and dump the live rounds, the empty and uh, the 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 expended round and and the five live rounds that were in the gun. So this is a suicide by cop type mission for him. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, and, but you bring uh, up something, Gary, there, though, and this is something that if you want to talk about, if there's a lesson here for folks, it's that you cannot watch the news and let that affect your judgment. And I'm not making judgments on your dad. I'm just saying, you know, and I know in a place like that, Marina Del Rey, I mean, hell, even Georgia Strait wrote a song about Marina Del Rey. It's a beautiful place, you know? Exactly. Um, it is. Nothing, nothing like that is supposed to happen in Marina Del Rey, you know? Nothing before or since has happened like that in Marina well, Del Rey. Well, I just pulled up. That's what I did. I just pulled up, you know, on ODMP, you can look at the agency. Yeah. So Los Angeles yeah. County Harbor Patrol, yeah. there's only one name listed. That's your father. Yep. And I don't know if you, either of you are familiar with the place, uh, but where the incident occurred, everything is still exactly the way it was back in 1979. Uh, and it's where the Cheesecake Factory is in Marina Del Rey. It's where the actual, the actual assault took place. Um, where the valet parking station is at the Cheesecake Factory in Rana del Rey. You know, this is uh, our, our regular listeners have heard us say this before. This is a perfect example of how the media will take a story and twitch it any way they can to sensationalize it because they're trying to bring in more viewers, which leads to more ad money. 
you know, so we, we jokingly say that like Hollywood never lets the truth get in the way of a good movie or a good TV series. Right. Well, you know, it seems to be awfully true like that with, uh, with, uh, uh, the, the, the incident involving your dad here, because they erroneously reported what really happened to sensationalize it and to get that public response, which leads to more stories, which leads to more advertisers. So we challenge not only here on the show, but uh, my partner Javier Pena and I, when we, when we do our speaking events, we challenge every audience, don't accept what we say or anybody else what they say as the gospel, as the truth. Go do your own research and then you make up your mind. Don't let somebody else make up your mind for you. It's, it's horrible what they, you know, they published about your dad. And, and I bet there was no retraction or apology from him either, was there? Well, you know what? I, 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 I've... I don't expect that. Um, you know, I mean, they, um, they, um, just like you said, they, they have a tendency to sensationalize. A lot of them are not terribly worldly and know very much. I'll never forget during the, um, do you remember the SLA shootout in LA? It was a big mm-hmm. deal back in the day. I was a that kid. Was the Symbionese, right? The yeah. Symbionese, Symbionese Liberation, Liberation Army. Army. I'll never forget watching it on the news as a, as probably twelve year old, thirteen year old boy, and seeing um, a, a LAPD unit show up <laughs> taking a, taking a box, and I mean it was a big box uh, labeled federal, you know, and it was ammunition, right? And the commentator says the LAPD is is getting uh, ammunition from the federal government. I mean, they just can't get it right. And I remember during the um, during the uh, Rodney King case, one of the uh, one of the news people said that he had been hobbled when, in actual fact, he was looking at the copper filament from the taser. Uh, which, of course, you know, it's tiny. It's not a hobble. A hobble is a heavy, heavy rope weapon thing, you know, I mean, it's, it's a hobble and, and, but the, but the news media guy, uh, a pretty famous reporter in LA erroneously said that he had been hobbled, uh, and was being beaten while he was hobbled when in fact they were looking at the copper filament from the taser, which had no effect. Once again, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. There you go. Murph, here's a trivia point for you. Who is the most famous member of the Symbionese Liberation Army? Patty Hearst. There you go. Yep. I remember. I, I grew up during that same time watching that yep. crap on TV. Holy yep. cow. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a lot of stuff going on there. You know, there's that was there was a, which is going to serve us well for the rest of the story, but there was a lot of stuff going on. During the 70s, you know, when you had the protest groups, you had the terrorists, you had the underground, uh, the weather yep. underground, you had all of these different radical groups. People forget how dangerous it was back in the 70s. They think now, you know, now Antifa's burning down stuff in Portland, you know, places like that, Seattle. But people forget in the 70s, you had buildings being blown up, you had cops being murdered, you had uh, people bombing the Pentagon, Bill Ayers bombing federal the Pentagon. Judges. Federal Never, judges. Being, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there were there were bombings at police stations in uh, California and I believe in Washington, D.C. Uh, you know, yeah, it was a very tumultuous time. No question about it. Well, so let's let's finish up on that, because I, I don't want this. To, you know, it's it's obviously a huge downer to start off that way. But very few stories of ours that we've talked to people start off the way yours did, which is. You have a father in law enforcement who dies in the line of duty while you're in the academy getting ready to go in. How did that shape your worldview after that? What what did it do to you that had that not happened, you would have been different in some way? What, what did that do to you? Well, it because I knew that, you know, I, I, I knew that, you know, there were some circumstances there that perhaps I could learn from. Um, I, I was never you know, Joe tactical, but I always, and to this day remain prepared and, uh, try to maintain situational awareness. And, um, you know, um, uh, I, I, as soon as I was still in training, as a matter of fact, as, as, as soon as I, uh, was able to qualify, I started carrying a 45, uh, you know, and, and got rid of the, uh, the 38 special. And, um, you know, I always just felt like, you know, it pays to be prepared. There are, you know, I can't, you can't, you can't anticipate every problem, but you can prepare to deal with most. You know, 
I can't imagine how unbelievably distracting that would be for you, you know, dealing with your dad and then trying to get through the police academy. Because, you know, contrary to what a lot of people believe, academies are challenging. Oh, yeah. Well, it was very challenging. And um, I took a week off of work uh, uh, or off of the academy. And um, the day I came back, uh, was a Monday, uh, and um, we were in the middle of. Uh, they were doing a lecture on 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 the vehicle code, so it was boring and interminable, <laughs> and, <laughs> and and all of a sudden they stopped inexplicably, and uh, they turned on the projector and started playing this this training film that the sheriff's department produced years ago about the CHP Newhall shooting where four CHP officers were, were, were killed. It was, it's, and it's a, you know, I mean, it's, it's a bloody, bloody movie. And I, and we'd seen that movie probably three or four times um, in the course of the academy training. And so I, to this day, I'm convinced that they purposely did that to see if I would lose it, if I could hold it together. And I did, you know, I mean, obviously I wasn't thrilled about it, but I, I pressed on and graduated with my class and, you know. I'm not sure I could have held it together. Well, you would have, you would have. You would have, but you know what I would have wanted to find out if that was actually what somebody did, I would have liked to take that sick bastard out back and kick his ass for a little <laughs> bit going, what the hell are you thinking? You know? Yeah. You know, let's let's let. How about one of your family members killed? We come in and we do something to you a week later. Yeah, I get that what they want to do, but guys, this isn't extreme seal training stuff. We had Kevin Holland on for that. We're just talking about that. I mean, and even then, they wouldn't do stuff like that. It's just like I, I don't know. That's the case, but if that's the case, my question is, what the hell were you thinking? Well, right. you know, it, it was. We never saw it again. And like I said, we saw it on the first day, which is to scare the heck out of all the, the new guys in the academy. And then we saw it a couple more times. And this is week three, no, the beginning of week four. And, uh, you know, and they, they do it on the first day I'm back from this, you know, which yeah. didn't, you know, I don't know if this has happened, had happened before in, in, you know, in the academy's history. And I don't know if it's happened since. I know the, another individual in my class lost his father, but it wasn't a law enforcement rated thing. It was a, a health issue. So right. I, my, my, my law enforcement cop's gut tells me that it was to see how I would deal with it. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it was a different age back then. You know, a lot, a lot different. <laughs> Things are really different. I, I started in 82. I know Murph started in what, aught seven or something like that, right? Uh, yeah, that's your aught seven right here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 75. Murph, Murph, Murph had to park his horse out front and make sure it was tied up so it wouldn't, <laughs> he wouldn't lose we, his ride. You don't want that damn thing to have to chase it, man. I can't catch I'll tell you why, man. It's the funniest thing is watching you chase down the horse. Hey, come back here. Horse ain't going to listen to you. Stop. <laughs> But Gary, so let's talk about that because um, you, but you got through the Academy. Let me ask you about that movie though, that shooting, I think, was that like 1967 or something, 68? Uh, no, it was early, early seventies. It was up in Newhall, uh, which is North of, of LA in LA County. Uh, yeah. And it was in the early seventies. Okay. Did that, did that, when they showed that on that day, did that cause any of the recruits to drop out? Oh, no. No, by the by the by the the beginning of the fourth week, unless you fail, you know, the 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 weak ones are gone by then, you know, for the most part. And now it's you if you fail because of some sort of, you know, uh, physical test or a written test or something like that. But they pretty much weeded out most of the people by week four, you know. So, no, I don't think anybody left after that uh, for that reason. Okay. Okay. That was April 1970. April 1970. It was close, yeah, around that time, yeah. Um, well, let, let's talk about getting in because I noticed one of the places, and I have to ask you, one of the places you worked at was Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you get to really meet Axel Foley? <laughs> <laughs> Good old Axel Foley, the gift that keeps on giving. Um, in actual fact, um, as I as I told somebody the story the other day, um, the the police department was built in 1932. It was not the state-of-the-art facility that you see depicted in the film. 
And we had uh, – when we would bring a prisoner in, it, we would come in through a carport on the ground floor, walk him over to the elevator, and the elevator was about as big as a call box. Um, I mean it was tiny, and it was circa 1932, and we'd take him up uh, three flights up to, the, up to the jail, and it was an old-style jail with hand levers and all kinds of weird stuff and everything. So no, there was no uh, – the only scene from that film that was shot, my understanding, in Beverly Hills was an exterior when Axel Foley is being bailed out. And they they um, they show him leaving the city hall. He walks out the front door of of city hall, um, and uh, and that is that's the only thing. Now the interesting thing is I was booking a prisoner, talking to the watch commander, and I and while this all the filming was going on, and uh, and I noticed this guy standing out in the outside uh, in the hallway outside the the watch commander's office, and and I said. Who's this guy? Because his uniform was perfect, his leather gear, weapon, badge, it all looked right. I'm sure if I got up close and looked at it, I would see that it, there, was, there was, you know, it was some of it was fake. But he looked absolutely as real as could be. And, uh, and it was an extra, uh, and, you know, standing inside the station, uh, you know, probably related to that exterior shot that they were doing. But none of it was filmed inside the station. Now they have a monitored facility, but back then they did not. You guys didn't look exactly like that going to work every day in Beverly Hills? Blonde <laughs> hair, you know, buff. Yeah. So that are right. you saying you were on Beverly Hills PD when the movie was being shot? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, see, I knew that's why I asked. Did you ever meet? So did you get a chance to meet Eddie Murphy and no. get some of his tactics or anything? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Not sure I'd want any of his tactics. (laughs) If you ever want a meeting, just let me know. I'll call cousin Eddie and you know. (laughs) But you know what? The guy that was his chief back in Detroit was an honest to God Detroit cop. Oh really? Yeah, he was, and and that's a lot of people didn't realize that. So the guy who played that was a was a, and he tell you what he sounded like a honest to God somebody. I, you, you get your ass back here. It wasn't one of these things like, hey, would you please come back like they yeah. do in Beverly Hills? It was yeah. Axel. <laughs> oh, that's the way it oh, is. Oh, my God. Oh, what what fun. Well, look, you did a lot of um, municipal work. I mean, you, you went through Manhattan Beach, you know, Beverly Hills, uh, even the L.A. County um, District Attorney. What made you want to what made you want to leave uh, real police work and go to work for an attorney? <laughs> well, well, at least he didn't go to the dark side. <laughs> 2150 to headquarters. Um, uh, yeah, I um, uh, while I was at Beverly Hills, I worked detectives for three years. And when I was a cadet uh, at Culver City, I worked in detectives. And so I really got bitten by the, the detective bug and almost – with the exception of four, about four, four and a half years, almost my entire career has been spent in in some sort of investigative role, or or as a manager or whatever investigators. And I went to the DA's office because I wanted to to work, continue working as an investigator. You know, because I'd gone back to patrol. It's hard when you've been a detective and you really enjoyed it to go back to patrol, and um, and I had to, and so that's when I. Uh, started looking uh, around for strictly investigative agencies that I could uh, transfer over to or move to. Well, talk about there's a unique relationship. You don't see it in many places. We see it in New York. I had some uh, buddies of mine um, from NYPD on. Murph and I had did an episode with Tommy Joyce and uh, his buddy Mike. And um, they, you know, you've got DA's offices up there. In fact, one of the guys we talked to, I can't, I think it was episode 13, was it? Dominic Polifrone. Dominic worked for Bergen County DA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are some unique relationships. So how does that relationship work in L.A.? Because, I mean, when you think of famous counties and famous district attorneys, there's only a handful of those around the country. They're known. Usually you think of uh, NYPD, you think of New York, you know, uh, and you think of L.A. So how does that relationship work when you go there? How do, how do the cases come out? How do you make sure that you're not stepping on each other's toes? And at the end of the day, ultimately, who has jurisdiction? If there's a homicide, is it you? Is it L.A. Sheriff? Is it LAPD? You know, how does that work? Well, um, primarily it is, um, the agency's, uh, handle until charges are filed. 
and uh, and I believe arraignment or preliminary hearing. After preliminary hearing, uh, it it uh, we become or the DA's office became responsible for uh, all of the investigative. Uh, aspects of the case, including you know, all the trial support things, you know, follow-up investigation, locating witnesses, other things. Um, I would say that we worked very, very closely with virtually every agency. Uh, well, and and had a great working relationship with all of them. But also, the DA's office had original jurisdiction cases. Um, welfare fraud was original jurisdiction. Um, a, a major fraud. We had a major fraud unit that had original jurisdiction. In environmental protection and OSHA cases were original jurisdiction cases. And uh, we had a major narcotics unit that I worked in and organized crime, and they were original jurisdiction cases. And um, and so um, you know, I did uh, I did some some pretty good uh, drug cases uh, when I worked there, and they were. They were dope cases, you know, as if I had worked for a, a, a local agency or a federal agency. You know, it was uh, – in fact, one of them was a Quaalude case. Uh, and uh, Well, I went to an Atlanta Rhythm section. There's a name from the past, the Atlanta Rhythm section. I went to a concert in college, and they go, hey, we're here for, you know, doing this. And they said – and then he goes, and then for those of you on Quaaludes <laughs> – <laughs> I was going to say, if you're talking quaaludes, man, you're dating yourself. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. These were facsimiles um, of – they were methoclone, but they were facsimiles, and they were being manufactured illicitly in Mexico. And I'm uh, shocked. Wait a minute. You you mean this is not anything new that we're having with Mexico, with fentanyl? and uh, You mean Mexico has been involved in drug trafficking this, this long? Uh, sadly, yes, I, I, I believe that is correct. Yes. And I'm not knocking the <laughs> citizens of Mexico. I'm just saying, I just get tired of hearing everybody thinks like this thing with fentanyl, like it's a new thing, like the human trafficking is a new thing. No, we've been having these issues with transportation and, and creation of synthetic dope, you know, um, uh, fake stuff for a long time. Well, I mean, Narcos did a whole series on, uh, Kiki Camarena. That, that ought to... And then uh, not long after that, um, Cortez, right, was another agent that was, was, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was that was that was kidnapped and uh, in Mexico. So, you know, yeah, Victor was it's, tortured also, but he, he was able to get away. Right. Yeah. Right. As went and got him. I worked with uh, um, a couple of guys that were familiar with that Leanda case. Hmm. Yeah, uh, that's a whole other yeah topic right there. Long yeah, that's a whole other episode that. there. Um, well, so but the other thing too, but then because the reason I'm kind of gliding through some of this because we're going to talk about some of the work you did overseas. You've had a unique path that a lot of cops don't take, but you went from the uh, L.A. District Attorney's Office and then you ended up becoming. Now, here's the other thing I want you to talk about too because I've noticed. Uh, CHP, the California Hot Patrol, seems to have broadened a lot of their authorities, you know, and a, a lot of things they get involved in. But there's also many states you go into, they either will have a state police or they'll have a state patrol with a state bureau of investigation. California is a little different. Tell, tell us now about how this structure with Cal DOJ and CHP and the food fight that I know is coming. <laughs> <laughs> structure, I think you're assuming facts, not in evidence. There is no structure. Basically, it's an alphabet soup of agencies. Um, and uh, I actually, when I lived in California, I was an advocate for a, a Department of Public Safety agency that oversaw all of these functions and uh, certainly would save the taxpayers a lot of money and made things a lot easier. Uh, but in California, you had uh, you had uh, the Lottery Commission, you had Department of Motor Vehicles, you had Fish and Game, you had the Medical Board, you had the Dental Board, you had the Board of Pharmacy, uh, you had all these boards, and they all were had peace officer status. They were all, you know, sworn peace officers. And then you had the Department of Justice, which is in essence like, you know, the uh, the state's Bureau of Investigation, you know, and we had uh, the Bureau of Narcotics Enforcement, which was world renowned uh, for uh, um, their training and uh, uh, 
and skills in uh, narcotics uh, enforcement. Uh, you know, we had an air wing, we had all of these things. And uh, I think when I came on, we had about probably, I think, close to four or 500 agents, special agents uh, throughout the state. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so um, there, the the Department of Justice uh, uh, works for the Attorney General, uh, but obviously we had original jurisdiction cases. We also did um, uh, trial support cases for the Deputy Attorney Generals, but that was pretty rare. Most of the work I did were original jurisdiction cases involving things that we started from day one and worked up. So that would so Cal DOJ would be would that be similar to like Florida Department of Law Enforcement? It's FDLE, not the Coopers, GBI, absolutely. Yeah, there you go. Absolutely, okay. exactly like know, that. Did you know? Uh, was BNE the Bureau of Narc- uh, Bureau of Narcotics Enforcement? Is that part of the Cal DOJ? That is. That was the. That was it. That was the. That I hired on with BNE. And um, and then uh, after two years, I went over to the Bureau of Investigation, uh, which was in the same office. Uh, but yeah, we worked major narcotics cases. You know, did did you ever know a guy named Ron Brooks? Of course. Oh yeah, yeah. you Brooks bet. Is a, Brooks <laughs> Hard is a not friend. to know Ron Brooks. <laughs> you have to work at that. <laughs> <laughs> he's doing pretty well now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good he's a good him. guy. I, Ron, I haven't seen Ron in years. He's a good man. He was at uh, ICP last week. Uh, oh, really? Doing his thing, yeah, down oh, in Dallas. Wow. Yeah, so tell everybody who Ron Brooks is. I mean, you guys are laughing. It's an inside joke, but you said he's doing pretty well now. What are we talking about? You know what? Beats the shit out of me what he's doing now. I don't know. He was – was he a HIDA director? Uh, he sure ran a bunch of different things. He was – He was. I believe he retired as a, as a, a special agent, a senior special agent in charge in um, the San Francisco, Sacramento area. And then he was involved with, he's heavily involved with the California Narcotics Officer Association, CNOA, and um, and has been involved in, you know, um, uh, intelligence um, uh, fusion center things, projects. Yeah, he's... Um, uh- He's one of the principals in a lobby group now that's based out of D.C. Okay. Where they, they work a lot with, with the Hyde, all the law enforcement groups, yeah. okay. to try to get uh, legislation passed, at least exactly. introduced through some yeah. of the different congressmen. Yeah, he's he's pretty much, you know, I mean, as long as I've known him, he has been in the, in the forefront of uh, narcotics enforcement and an advocate for narcotics enforcement. The Bureau of Narcotics Enforcement was disbanded by um, – Kamala Harris when she was the attorney general. Why? Well, there are a lot of explanations. Um, budget uh, constraints has been suggested as one of the reasons, but they basically cut the workforce of the of the Division of Law Enforcement, which was what uh, Bureau of Investigation and the Bureau of Narcotics Enforcement were under, about by half, I believe. Um, and, uh, with that, they disbanded the Bureau of Narcotics Enforcement. A few years later, they were asking why did they do that? Because they suddenly found themselves in the midst of all these narcotics epidemics, starting with, uh, you know, heroin and, and, uh, pharmaceuticals, and then now fentanyl. And, uh, there is no dedicated, you know, uh, mm-hmm. narcotics enforcement agency there. It's all now falls on the shoulders of uh, local law enforcement agencies. And we had task forces throughout the state of California. I don't even know how many task forces we had. And our um, the task force commanders were DOJ special agent supervisors that were promoted into task force commander position. And we provided all of the coordination and, um, you know, infrastructure for those task forces. And they were everywhere and they were incredibly successful and uh, did an amazing job. And uh, that's pretty much all gone now. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's nice, isn't it? The uh, DEA. All the DEA offices in California have a very, very robust task force program where the uh, state and locals, you know, get get their guys cross-deputized there so that they can not only enforce state and local law, but also federal law when it comes to narcotics. So Exactly. I, yeah. What a shame. I, yeah, it really is. It's, it's, uh, it's pathetic is what it is, but yeah. that's another story. 
Yeah. And, you know, I'm not asking that to be political because we stay away from politics. But when you right. look at stuff and you go, California, let me think. You look at it, it's a border state as well, too. So you got everything coming through yeah, Mexico up that way. You've got, uh, you know, you've got cartel activity left and right going on out there. It was a big transship. It was a big destination point. Hell, we had George Young on here, um, you know, Pablo's business partner. Where do you think he was delivering a bunch of his cocaine to? Mm-hmm. Frickin' California. And I'm Southern just thinking, California. Yeah. Why mm-hmm. would you want to disband a statewide agency that would focus on, I mean, Granted, not every state has its own separate state agency, but California is not most states. When you think of how many people in that state now, 38 million, yeah, you know, whatever, it, it, it's bigger than many countries are. Right. You know, I, that I don't, have their- I'm sure you've, you've heard the statistic that California has, uh, I don't know, a astronomical you know, uh, rating as far as the, one of the largest economies in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, were it to separate from the United States, it would have you know, this huge economy and all these other things. Um, yeah. Um, uh, to me, it's inexplicable, um, you know, uh, but, uh, and I have, I have heard whispers of why this really happened, but I don't know for sure. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't comment. I mean, not to be, uh, make derogatory remarks against our vice president, but we know what politicians do. They will tell you what you want to hear to get your vote. And I'm going to guess that's probably what was going on back then. There was some kind of movement to do away with that because people were going to jail for breaking the freaking law. Well, you know, I mean, uh, certainly the 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 uh, the the medical marijuana or the um, uh, recreational marijuana business was huge in California, and they have heavy political war chests um, and probably a great deal of clout in Sacramento. Um, so that could have been part of it. Um, uh, the then governor, um, Jerry Brown, who remember Jerry Brown, he used to run for oh, president yeah. about every five minutes. It seemed like <laughs> moonbeam Jerry Brown, Jerry Brown. Yeah. Um, he, uh, we, uh, the agents association did not support him in the election. They supported, I don't remember somebody else. And, um, and he got a little uh, got a little miffed at that, I believe. And not long after that, um, the uh, the budget started getting the chop. So it doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure that one out. Well, gee, let's 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 kind of game that out all the way. So, really, are you hurting the agents? Or are you hurting the communities and the people who don't need this stuff in their communities? At the end of the day, you end up hurting the ones you love, and that's exactly what he did. Yeah. Well, well not, not to mention they're in Sacramento, and, and you, I mean, L.A. is like crime central. It's it's like that's where all the crime starts and spreads from there on down through Southern California, the Mexican border. Uh, and God bless our police officers down there and all of our first responders that put up with that crap. But, you know, th- there's a big difference between L.A. and Sacramento. Yeah. Huge difference. And, you know, L.A., one of our, our leading exports for a long time was uh, criminal gangs. And, uh, you know, uh, and a lot of the gangs that uh, that are now in other parts of the country in the Midwest uh, got their start in in California. You know, it's another another thing to be proud of. (laughs) Yeah. Such a beautiful state. And it is. It's tragic. It really is tragic because California is an extraordinary place. It truly is. So I'm springing this on Murph. He doesn't realize we're doing it this way, but we're we're doing a two part thing now. We're, we're we're we've got a new format coming up, and you're our first victim. So because you're our first victim, you didn't know that the. So what we're going to do is this is going to be the end of part one. We're letting everybody know right now this is the end of part one. This is kind of setting the stage. We're getting a good uh, grasp of your experience, what's going on. Um, we'll have our intro, but then when we get into part two, though, this is when we really start diving into your assignment to the joint terrorism task force. Some of the work you did overseas coming back. I want to talk about Gitmo and uh, places like that. So let's bring the end of part one, uh, to a close. Part two will come out Monday. This comes out on Monday. Part two comes out on Tuesday. So this is our new format. You're a first guinea pig. What do you got to say, Murph? You, You got that look on your face. Yeah, now just for our listeners that are listening to this new way we're doing things, let us know what you think about it because you know we've we've done interviews that are as long as five hours, um, and so we're we're trying new things here. So let us know what your opinion is after you listen to uh, to Gary's interview. You're both both parts. Don't just listen to one both part. Part one is Monday. Part two is Tuesday. So you guys stay tuned. Everybody, hang on. Uh, part two is coming up. 
in 24 hours.